As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Eisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, we're finally doing it. We're finally uh, recording <laughs> the episode. The episode. Uh, well, yeah, it, it's definitely what everyone is talking about, isn't it? It's the only story in financial markets right now. We've got a million requests to do it. We're talking about GameStop, obviously. Yeah. Um, where to even begin describing this? There's a subreddit called Wall Street Bets. Yeah. And a bunch of people on the subreddit decided to trade GameStop. Um, there are a bunch of different theories about why they looked at that particular stock. But what's happened since then is that they've basically forced it to go up by an astronomical amount. We've seen people on the other side of that trade, notably a hedge fund called Melvin Capital, that had a big short position, has suffered massive losses and basically had to be thrown a lifeline by some other hedge funds. And meanwhile, we've seen this phenomenon of, uh, I guess, social media fueled, uh, specific stock targeted trading, this retail trading en masse. We've seen that extend to a lot of other stocks in the market, uh, AMC, American Airlines, and OK. There, there's a lot going on right now. I don't even think I did it justice. Let's just say it's the craziest week I've seen in markets in my entire career. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it is a complete, you know, we've we've both seen crashes at times in our career, but crashes are familiar things. We there's they're common. They happen. We have never really seen anything like this. The perfect storm that's come together with hedge funds shorting a stock, social media driving it to the moon, and then the trade itself becoming a meme, driving it even higher, causing all kinds of losses. Hedge funds not just covering their shorts, but liquidating their winners to maintain within their volatility parameters. The story is everything, and now we're going to dig into it. Okay, I'm excited. There is there's one big question which I think a lot of people are focused on at the moment and that's whether or not GameStop and what's happening in a lot of other uh, meme stocks at the moment whether that's due to a structural weakness that redditors have basically identified and we've spoken about it on all thoughts before or whether it's something more I don't know how to describe it cultural or fundamental, whether people actually believe that GameStop should be a buy and the shares should be going up this much. Yeah, 
Totally wild. All right. I am very excited because uh, we are going to be speaking with a participant in the GameStop trade, the big long, someone who has been bullish on the company for a while, long, uh, you know, while everyone else was saying the company was dead, while everyone was saying this was going to be the next blockbuster and going out of business. Our guest today has been a believer for a while. So we are going to, uh, we'll just get right into it. No more throat clearing. We are going to be speaking with a Rob Alsman, he is a uh, retail investor, but he is part of the crew that put together the website gmedd.com. DD stands for due diligence. GME is the GameStop ticker where they collect the bull case for GameStop. He's been long GameStop for several years. Uh, He's starting when the stock was in the teens. He watched it go down, stuck with it. And now finally, the big long is paying off paid off massively beyond anyone's expectations. We are going to talk about the trade. So, uh, Rod, thank you so much for joining us. Joe, Tracy, it's a pleasure to be here. Love the podcast. It's kind of mind-blowing that I'm on it with you right now. Well, it is kind of mind-blowing for us to be talking with a participant in the GameStop trade. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, You know, a lot of people have been following this for the last week. As I mentioned, you've been following it for uh, a few years, a long time GameStop bull. What attracted you? What's your background? How did you get into investing and markets? And how did you uh, zero in on GameStop uh, specifically as a potential for a big payoff? Yeah, Joe, let me go rewind way back. I'm I'm 31 years old, so I've lived through in undergrad the financial crisis. But even before the financial crisis, I've always personally had an interest in markets and investing, kind of a nerd. I bought indirectly through my father as a custodian GameStop stock in around 2003 or so as my first ever investment, as a matter of fact. And at the time, it was purely a function of I'm a kid who goes in the mall and I see all these people and I love video games and I see how many other people seem to love video games. And great. I told them to buy it and it paid off because they had a merger with uh, an acquisition with Electronics Boutique in 2005. The stock did pretty well up through you know, the financial crisis peak, um, needed the money for college, though, and liquidated before the, the crash thereafter. But bringing it up to today, what brought me into the story again in 2017 was pursuit of value. It was pursuit of what I perceived to be a mispriced opportunity in the market that is um, certainly born more fruit than I ever would have imagined. So you took a fundamentals viewpoint on the stock from the beginning Take us back to when this trade idea first surfaced on Wall Street bets. Like, how were people talking about it? And what was the bull case that got the whole trade started? So, Tracy, I'll I'll answer your question, but I want to be very clear that this there have been plenty of long investors, myself, just one loud voice among them for a long time, going back at this point, years plural, obviously. 17. But, but let's fast forward. I think one of the first big tipping points to me in terms of seeing people enter the trade mm. was around August of 19. So if we look, if we were to look at the chart and you would see a massive decline in price that finally reached a, a crescendo or, or troughed out. I'm, I'm trying to look at the chart and it's absurd right now with the current price action to even notice it. But the price got down to around $4 at that time. And just given the going forward operations, given what we knew, we knew that the at that point, I believe it was public knowledge that the disk drives would be present on the next generation video gaming consoles. And 
to me, that was a huge deal. Michael Burry had an interview with, you know, your your uh, associate right. on Bloomberg Opinion Desk, Ty Kim, at and Barron's at the time. And I, I, was, I read that uh, in addition to other research I'd been conducting. And that, to me, uh, it was ironic, actually. A couple days prior to the, his letter and, and the interview and all of that being published in August, I was actually on vacation in Hawaii with my girlfriend or with our family. We were, we were in Hawaii and I was buying January 21 call options on GameStop because nice. I saw this was so fundamentally mispriced and I saw a clear a very clear catalyst coming in the fall holiday of 2020. So I was not the only one. In hindsight, I found this out. But but let me be clear, the, the Reddit Wall Street right. bets fervor that's come about, that was not the end all be all. You know, I, I'm happy to highlight though what I believe to be the, the key trigger with Wall Street bets was. This is what I think is really interesting about this to me and why one of the aspects about why I love this story, because we talk a lot about the sort of maniacal or maybe weaponized call options buying that's associated with the Wall Street bets community, a lot of people on Robinhood, the effect that has on the stock. And we could talk about that more, too. And I think that's a really important angle. We've talked about it on some other episodes. People should go back and listen to our Ben Eifert episode about the options mechanics. But I love that in an era in which so many people talk about the death of the value trade or the death of value stocks, that for people like you, the other guy uh, who's big on uh, Wall Street bets, who's uh, Wall Street, who's Reddit handle, I can't really say because it's not safe for work. Let's call him Roaring yeah, Kitty. Yeah, the Roaring Kitty because he's on YouTube and Twitter. Yeah, his Wall Street was Reddit one we can't say. For you and him, like when you go back and look at it, it was a classic w- disciplined value idea, the likes of which one yes. would expect to see like at the Sone conference put together by like an old school hedge fund manager. And, and and that's why I, I want to really highlight that it was so much more than what's come to be with right. the fervor and, and the energy, which we, we need to talk about. I think it is an unprecedented thing, but but I think it does a disservice to folks like me, my 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 friend, Roaring Kitty, uh, others who did a lot of work over the years. And you know what? We took our licks for a long time because this stock truly was shorted into oblivion when we think about the durable short interest at the level that it was at. I mean, the price got below the net cash on its books for a while. Like this company was trading as if management was on a mission to destroy it. Even after all of these things happened along the way, such as a strategic review that led to them divesting their technology brands business heading into 2019, the appointment of a new management team, taking some really really important SG&A reduction actions, given that GameStop had become a very bloated physical um, footprint. So I think it's really unfair and it does a disservice to us. I've been talking about GameStop on different platforms over the years. Stock Twits, I joined in 2018 and started talking about it there. I started talking about it on Seeking Alpha in 2019. And I'm not the only one. I know there are plenty of others and I'm going to do them a disservice, not calling them all out by name. But it was a a loose communal effort of a lot of folks who felt like this was a contrarian play. This was a misunderstood, mispriced security that simply people weren't getting it. And look, we we benefited from things happening along the way, such as COVID. In, in fact, you know, I think GameStop, you could make a very strong argument, was a beneficiary of COVID. And 
Ryan Cohen opting in August to file a 13D saying he was now the largest shareholder with a 9% stake. And obviously we can talk about what happened from then to now with Ryan, but I think those things were not part of the original thesis. And of course, we all know theses update, you have to stay present. And I don't think the shorts ever updated their thesis. I think that's the big thing. When August came along and you saw this, you saw GameStop survived COVID, you saw Ryan Cohen was clearly interested. This is not a person, if you do your research on the man, that does things on a whim. He had had he had publicly noted he only held Apple and well, uh, hmm. Wells Fargo stock, and now he added GameStop to the mix. So that should tell you something, right? As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. What was it about GameStop that captured people's imagination? So you mentioned it's a contrarian play. You know, there's huge short interest, so the professionals are betting against it. But for some reason, there's this group of individual retail investors that see value in it and, you know, kind of deal with it differently to a lot of other companies um, that you might say are undervalued. What was special about GameStop or, or what happened to uh, to spark that sort of um, community or, or movement? I think you have to highlight COVID. And I would, I definitely would highlight Roaring Kitty as the host. If I'm sure you all, I know I've seen his videos cited in a few places, but to know the full story, you need to appreciate that this guy, and I don't even know his real name. Um, I have spoken with him via DM, but you know, I know he's a private person and I'm not trying to pry into his life. And I don't think he wants to you know, look, he's obviously um, benefited greatly from this personally and, and for the sake of his family. And I know he's probably um, elated, uh, mixed with emotions just like me, but, but in August, July, in the summer of 2020, you know, he, I discovered his uh, YouTube channel and, you know, YouTube has a chat function. So whereas in the past I had maybe been, you know, saying what I thought on a stock twits platform and it's, uh, you know, one uh, comment and then other people have to sub comment on it, so to speak. It was very easy for a lot of people to just talk about what's going on. What are we seeing as new information came into the mix as Ryan Cohen filed each incremental 13 D DA as you know, new investors like Senvest added positions as information about their, their online sales came into play. You know, we were able to have just open, there's nothing collusive about what our conversations were. We were simply talking about what we were seeing and, you know, it was helping us to feel the conviction that, yeah, we were up big. We, you know, the price had appreciated already when we think about from August into you know November, it had gotten up 5x. But we were all looking forward. We were all seeing, you know what, there is a huge upside opportunity by what I would deem to be two separate options that were embedded in the equity. You had the Ryan Cohen option, which to me has now been realized, um, at least it was a big factor. The Ryan Cohen option to me was a 
further acceleration of the company into the e-commerce digital first space, which is largely in line with what Sherman, the current CEO and management team had been articulating. But you, know, you had a proven winner in e-commerce who can go up against the biggest of the big, who can execute a customer fanatical operation and win in e-commerce. So that was one thing. If he were not in the mix, this would not be where it is today. The second option is simply the short interest. I mean, no, no one can call a short squeeze. If you look at my Twitter, I've been citing data around it about what is, you know, FINRA's short interest that they've put out, um, you know, bi-monthly, what, you know, has Igor at S3 Partners been saying about it. He's put out some great research. He's been all over it this week in the past. But to me, it was an embedded option that maybe this pays off, but what is the value of the prospect of there being a, a fundamental disconnect in, in the market where there is a squeeze action? And I think those two things made it easier for those of us who who saw the full big picture to yeah. have conviction to diamond hand in the parlance of Wall Street bets and and to hold through it and not, you know, yeah, I took off uh, chips and I made mistakes tactically along the way, but I am, you know, very fortuitous and many others are too, because they, I think, saw things that you couldn't see just looking at a spreadsheet. Can I ask a really simple business model question? You know, the the reason, and you, you mentioned that the shorts never updated their thesis, which I think is uh, really interesting, but why isn't physical retailing of video games inherently dead or going the way of Blockbuster? Because I think that's still probably the missing thing. It's like, why does this business exist? What is the nature of it that people keep getting wrong about that? Joe, that is a great question. And that is the question that I think is fundamentally disagreed on by the longs and shorts in the stock. But if you would ask a long like me, I would say we've seen it with electric vehicles, right? When adoption curves come into play, people think that the next big thing, in this case, let's relate EVs to digital downloads of video games, uh, maybe a little simple, but adoption curves are not an overnight thing, right? It's not a light switch. Um, certain products and services are faster than others, of course, but I viewed it as given the fundamental landscape, we have what are the different demand drivers for a physical video game product? Well, GameStop is, I believe, the most seasonal company in the entire market as it relates to percent of revenue being derived from fourth quarter. Holiday gifting is a massive driver of GameStop's business. And it's not just the physical video games that are or digital video game codes that are sold, but all the related goods that are sold, you know, as gift holiday gifting. So Gifting, collectability, I think is a big piece of it. I don't, I'm a gamer personally. I have downloaded a couple of games. I personally prefer to have the collection and be able to see my collection. I think a lot of people feel that way. If you look at video game streamers, you'll see a lot of them proudly por you know, por portray their collection of games and their different paraphernalia. I think culturally that collectability is a piece of it. You've got the physical, the infrastructure piece of it. I mean, not everyone has access to high-speed internet. And while a lot of games now are released with a, you know, a day one patch that requires, you know, however many gigabytes of a download, um, I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on with this current generation. For example, backwards compatibility. Hmm. You can play PlayStation 4 discs on your PlayStation 5 discs. And when you think about the value that a consumer, especially think lower middle income consumers who, you know, they're not, they don't have access to the best data plan. They may not have the discretionary income to pay $60 for a brand new game and they can pay 10, 20, whatever it might be. They're going to get dozens of hours of entertainment value. Commingle that with COVID. And I know I'm getting a little away from the physical versus digital there, but it's a great stay at home entertainment option 
And I think a lot of people, when they become gamers, they stay gamers for life. So it's a growth industry macro. Coming, pulling myself back to the physical versus digital, I think there's collectability. There is that whole gifting piece. And there's purely the ownership piece. Like some people just like to physically own something in their hand. And even though maybe they couldn't even access the game if the server went down, so it's not quite different from owning a digital copy of it. There's that. And, and then the resaleability, of course, which really dovetails with GameStop. The fact that you have a residual on this product you purchased and you bought this new video game, Call of Duty, for 60 bucks, you decided, I don't want to play Call of Duty anymore. And I can go and either I can sell it on eBay, Mercari, wherever, you know, give it to a friend, let them borrow it, or I can turn around and trade it in at GameStop. And if I'm a pro member, I'm going to get more credit for it. And it is a compelling value, I think. So when you started looking into this and you started developing your long thesis, what was your actual price target on the stock? Like how far did you think it could go? So Tracy, that's a great question. Look, there's a fundamental price target. And then clearly where we are today, you know, we're, we're on a moon mission, it seems, if, if you believe the Wall Street bet crowd. But fundamentally, you know, the research we put out uh, at GMEDD.com, we, we purposefully put that out because after the appointment of Ryan to the board, we felt like there was going to be an incremental PR campaign on behalf of the short side. And, and there was. Citroen Research came out, and I think we, we need to talk about that, but let me not get there right now. But we wanted to put out what we believed. Again, this is I, I, I'm disclaiming any beneficial ownership. I, I have a few hundred shares left at this point. I'm a small fry. I'm, I'm a kid from Long Island who's gotten wound up in some crazy story here that, that's going to get written about for years, it seems. But you've got a fundamental price that Ryan Cohen, like I mentioned earlier, as an upside option, we laid out a clear path to 169 as a bull case price target, you know, half in jest, but half in, look, we just wanted to point out, and this was when the price was, you know, 30 odd dollars a share, that Ryan brings to the table a lot of opportunity. You know, there's a digital advertising business that I have done so much research and so many other people have too, but I caught on to them testing digital advertising and embedding ads through a third-party marketing platform on their web properties before anyone else. I have been ingesting information that I, I realized that their online ordering platform processes order numbers sequentially. So when I made that realization, purely as a function of me being a consumer, me placing a handful of orders over the summer during COVID for video game products, noting, wow, these numbers look like they're going up in, you know, in sequence. And I realized you could actually back into their e-commerce for their U.S. web property order flow with these order numbers. I started crowdsourcing that stuff. And I built a financial model purely backing out US e-commerce based on estimates for the size of international, based on the mix of e-commerce to total sales to, to derive what is actually going on. I'm doing the dirty work that I don't think people like the you know shorts were doing. And I had a conversation, you know, I had a hedge fund reach out to me to ask me about what I was doing and they were largely in line. And it was like, you know, this is a pat on the back. This is affirmation that what you're doing is right. And you're seeing things people aren't seeing. So all of those things, plus just the cost function. You know, I talked about store footprint earlier. They had over, I think, 7,000 stores at one point. They're down to 5,000 or so international included. They're 3,300 domestically. You know, I, I keep seeing people in mainstream media reporting that they are a mall-based retailer, and yet they are 90% strip mall domestically. So, you know, how much due diligence are people doing if they're making these assertions purely based on what is, you know, common knowledge? They're not actually digging into it. 
I will, you know, I eventually want to like get over to some of the more current dynamics, the social media, et cetera. But I'm actually just like incredibly fascinated by the whole fundamental angle. But for, for listeners who may not know, and I say listeners, but that includes myself. Can you talk a little bit more about Ryan Cohen, his background and why his entry into the arena was for so many people uh, such a game changer? Yeah, Joe, that's that's a huge question that I don't see enough people asking. So I, I want to give it a, a hopefully a adequate answer. You know, Ryan Cohen, for those who are listening to the pod and don't know, he was one of the co-founders of Chewy.com. What is Chewy.com? Hopefully, you know, folks are aware they're a pet supply services product provider, a, an e-commerce native. They basically went into a market that you know, Amazon, Petco, PetSmart, all the other big players were already present in, right? I mean, you had a startup trying to enter an existing market. What did they have? Um, Ryan, from all the reading I've done, is a maniacally focused on the customer experience. He's just completely obsessed with delivering for customers. I think it's that Jeff Bezos kind of mantra of, if you are obsessing about your customers and delivering compelling value for your customers, then, you know, look, Jeff was selling books, Ryan was selling dog food, but you can apply that to anything. And I think that we, the folks who are long GameStop, saw Ryan enter GameStop and think, well, it doesn't matter that he was successful in growing Chewy from a startup to selling at $3.3 billion. Now the company's worth, I think, more than 10x that. There's some personal backstory I've read about Ryan with regards to the passing of his father, the timing related to his decisions to make the sale of Chewy. Uh, my belief personally is that he desires a return to leading, uh, whether it's a, a legacy company or startup. And clearly he's chosen GameStop, one would think, and he clearly has a plan for GameStop. You know, he laid out a plan in his November letter, but even before that November letter to the board, I think you saw some um, smatterings of an activist campaign that was put out in Bloomberg and that was put out in um, a CNBC write-up by another um, shareholder activism-related player. So it seemed like if you were looking closely, you had a guy who had succeeded in e-commerce. The company was already trying to shift toward e-commerce. And it just seemed to me like, and to others, that if you combine the two, there's a lot of synergy there. And the math can make a lot more sense for GameStop going forward to be a you know compelling value driver for consumers in a more digital world. And it can make sense for investors too. So I want to get back to the social media question and how all this went down on Wall Street Bets. And I I take the point about the business model, but I kind of feel like you could, you know, you can have contrarian bets on a bunch of things and people can make a very convincing case for a lot of different companies. Right. But it's it's rare that it takes off in the way that it has for GameStop. Yes. So I really want to dig into what happened on Wall Street Bets and how did this become such a big thing? So there's, if we are going to highlight one point, and I think this is absolutely the most important point, is what Citroen Research did. So first off, let me let me confess, I have gone on Wall Street Bets. I've perused the platform. Uh, I find it amusing, informative, uh, entertaining, all of the above. Um, a little bit, I feel a little bit unclean when I walk away, but I typically walk away laughing. You know, there, I think, is this feeling of us versus themness on Wall Street Bets that's really come to the surface now. 
Um, you know, we are these small, you know, un, uninformed. Some, some of the people on that platform are really smart. We've got doctors, lawyers lurking on that platform. You know, I'm sure fund managers are lurking on that platform too, but the common... Yeah, super impressive. Let me say why I think Citron's so important, because this whole us versus themness, um, Citron came out and said, we're going to publish a research report about why GameStop should be going to $20. And this was when it had surged up to about 40 or so. I think when people on Wall Street Bets saw that happen, you know, even though the stock had already made a, um, a very significant run, it just felt like another one of those, the big guy is trying to screw me type moments. And, you know, it sent the price down temporarily. I tweeted about it and I called it a strategic blunder. If, if I have no evidence, but if we were to believe that some of the big short hedge funds contacted Citroen, which again, speculating, that that was a strategic blunder on their part to, to put out a message from a party that is despised on the Wall Street Bets platform and knowing the amount of energy, you know, I, I had a, Wall, a New York Times reporter reaching out to me and he had made the claim and I haven't validated it that the volume on Wall Street Bets went up like 10x after the Citroen event. So related to GameStop. So I think that that is clearly the salient moment where everyone kind of said, you know, F it, this is us versus them, YOLO, you know, diamond hand this thing to the moon type of a thing. And people were already saying that, but that was the really salient moment. And, and Tracy, to your point about you know, some of the really complex, maybe options stuff. Look, I don't, I'm not a gamma squeeze um, aficionado. I don't know anything about that mm-hmm. in detail. So I, I don't feel so comfortable trying to delve into the mechanics of it personally. You guys can explain it to, to me or to the audience. But, uh, you know, the fact now this week that we're seeing um, options market makers refusing to write new contracts. And I saw that Robin Hood who, if I am correct, routes their order flow through Citadel, who just bailed out Melvin Capital on Monday, uh, is no longer even allowing people to open long stock positions in GameStop, only allowing closeouts. You know, it, it sure seems collusive to me on the other side of the trade, what's going on. Tracy, uh, you know, why don't you give us our, your 30-second description of what, uh, just for listeners, of what the Gamma Squeeze is? Sure. Um So I guess I should start out by saying that we are going to try to record a new episode on this topic with someone who's been on before. That's Ben Eifert from QVR Advisors. He's going to walk us through it again. But in a nutshell, basically, when retail traders trade options, there's a market maker who makes that trade actually happen. But the market maker isn't trying to take a position on the stock. They're not trying to bet against it they want to stay neutral. So what they do in order to stay neutral is they typically end up buying the underlying stock as the price rises. So the idea here is that if the price rises and they might get closer to having to pay out on the options contract, well, they can sell the stock and they can make up the difference that way. So what tends to happen is, as we've seen more retail investors get into stock options, courtesy of these no-commission platforms like Robinhood, we've seen this dynamic, it's called a gamma squeeze, happen a lot more where a lot of retail options activity is forcing the share price of the underlying stock to actually go up. And that kind of leads to a self-reinforcing cycle where the share price can just go up and up and up and up. And it... You know, if you have a gamma squeeze going alongside a short squeeze at the same time, well, you really can get to the moon, I guess. Yeah, that was great. This is why I like being your co-host, Tracy, because we needed that. Rod, (laughs) Rod, um, I know you're like setting aside the options mechanics, which Tracy, I think, explained very well there. 
What's your view of that dimension of investing? Because, okay, we talked about the Wall Street bets angle, but the uh, the use of these new free tools, the ability for people to trade on margin, to trade leverage, to buy options on their phone, to sign up an account in five minutes. What's your sense of how important that dynamic is uh, to this particular trade and this particular, yeah, this particular uh, mission to the moon? Yeah, I had a friend yesterday telling me that his um, his girlfriend had never traded a security before <laughs> until GameStop. She had put $25 in and it turned into 1000 Yes. So I think there's a great example right there. You know, I've seen, I've had dozens of people reach out to me personally and, and most of whom are small players, but you know, thanking me and others for the work we've done over the years. And it's, it's been incredible. I mean, it's, it's been an emotional roller coaster, financial roller coaster, but, but it's truly democratized, Joe, to your point, the ability for players to participate in something. And look, it is a speculative position right now. It is People buying it right now are not buying it because the discounted future cash flows are going to be commensurate with a 30, 40, whatever billion market cap we're currently at today, you know, given all known information. But but that said, people know that there is a massive short position still. I think the S3 update was you know, much lo uh, lower than it was yesterday, but there's still a massive short position. So I think you could argue these people are purely irrational and they're gambling. And yes, there are aspects of that. And I would say COVID exacerbated that yeah. because people had a lot of discretionary income. Some people, you know, we talk about the K-shaped recovery you guys have covered at length and the beneficiaries having all this excess discretionary incomes who've maybe been able to tap into financial markets in a way that they weren't able to do previously. They have some extra time if maybe they're working from home, whatever. And, and look, yes, it's risky because a lot of people are, like you said, there's margin, there's over leveraging themselves. Well, you know, the big hedge funds over leverage themselves, but let me stick with the, the small guys for now. The fact that these people are buying long calls and they're, you know, zero days to expiry like last Friday was mind blowing. I, I had written some $60 calls, so I lost 800 of my shares last Friday, but you know what? I wasn't that mad about it because I knew that, you know, some Redditor along the way probably just made life-changing amount of money, but it, it is, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily because look, if all market participants are aware of all the market mechanics, then people presumably should be able to hedge appropriately. People should be able to make strategic bets and or tactical bets to, to move appropriately, big, big and small players. But but yeah, there's the definitely the casino effect that COVID has exacerbated and that this democratization of, you know, zero commission options trading um, has fostered. Yeah, there's a doorman at a hotel in New York that I'm friendly with, and he DM me this week asking what options are and should he be trading them? What did you say? Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much. I said, okay. I think I said, if you don't know what they are, it's probably not a good idea to start trading them, especially this week. But it's sort of your um, classic shoeshine boy example, isn't it? It's weird that people are talking about options so much. People are Googling terms like short squeeze and even gamma squeeze so much that you can actually see the pickup on Google Trends. What do you think the company should do? In theory, it could do something with this money, but I guess its hands are also maybe a little tied because of all the craziness that led to it getting that money or the share price going up so much. Yeah, Tracy, you're right. They Doing nothing to me is not an option. And I do think there's a little bit of a feeling as an investor of 
asleep at the wheel. And that's just my perception. I haven't had a conversation with investor relations in the last um, couple of weeks. I did reach out to them after the Cohen announcement and ask Eric Cerny at GameStop IR, you know, hey, are we going to expect to hear from you guys before fourth quarter earnings? And you know, that, it was you know one of those, well, for now, that's when you can expect to hear from us type responses. But you're right. It's the stocks that they have a hundred million dollar uh, at the money shelf currently that they had um, brought out in the third quarter earnings release. If I, I'm losing track of time in my mind, but a month or so back. And I'm, uh, you know, Jim Cramer, I think it was last weekend when the price was in like the 30s, was you know, pounding the desk saying that, that he called up management and was telling them they need to issue stock. Well, it's up 10x from there, Jim. So <laughs> clearly they... They must know something, or or maybe they're you know maybe they're better traders than you. I don't know, man. But I, I do think it is an opportunity to recapitalize. And you know, I, as an investor, no one likes dilution. But look at what Tesla's done over the years. I, I think that if you lay out a path forward, if you lay a credible plan to deploy that capital in a productive way for shareholders, you, you know, look, could, could it become some sort of self-reinforcing cycle that the price keeps going up? I don't know. Well, do they need cash? I've seen, uh, I've seen, because I've seen this discussion on Twitter about the idea of raising more. Then I've seen other people say, no, they're like, they're on track to be cash flow positive, et cetera. Like, what is the business right now in terms of its sustainability stock aside? Yeah, look, they're going to generate cash this quarter. They have a bond maturing that they prepaid a 60 odd percent of it that matures in March. So they have another 2023 bond. And, and then a lot of people look at their balance sheet and see these lease obligations, which will those go away if, if they close the store. So there's a lot of misinformation or, or lack of understanding around what is truly debt versus you know what's a, a liability from just an accounting perspective. So they don't really have a ton of long-term debt on their books. And they're in a position to even take this crazy price action aside, they were in a position to um, pay down the March uh, bond with you know no need to tap capital markets. So you could argue, look at the interest rates they were paying on the debt. Um, they're still junk rated. So is there an opportunity for them to improve their credit worthiness by raising some capital? Uh, you know, that's beyond my personal domain of expertise. But I think it is an opportunity to better position themselves. And you know, look, if they're trying to shift to e-commerce, they were, they're going to need to make some investments, I have to think, in whether it's the digital channel, um, the web properties, whether they want to make some incremental fulfillment investments. I don't know what the right answer is off the top of my head, but I have to imagine that there is opportunity for them to invest and that this is a way for them to tap the market in a, in a much cheaper way than it would have been a few months ago from a dilution perspective. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. 
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So obviously, okay, we get this idea. There's The stock itself has become a meme. Everyone's into it. Talk to us about the role that uh, the Roaring Kitty had in this. And, you know, I, his video is like, he's very funny. He's also, like you, very smart and very, like, understanding of the fundamental business. And so, again, people might be put off by, like, or find his name funny on Wall Street Bets or the videos of him dipping chicken tenders. But he's really knows his stuff. And so talk to us about, like, the sort of, the new the new 21 2021 style guru who like really gets the market but also knows how to connect with people and the importance of him specifically in your view of catalyzing this action it's it's difficult to say but but what you you said joe i think has a lot of legs to it this idea that you can be smart you can be knowledgeable but you can also be relatable you can be a goofball you can have a good time and be a nice human being and, and I would highlight that about the guy. He's a decent human being. He's a really nice person. If you ever watch his videos, I've spent God knows how many hours over the summer just being in, in there, listening to the guy go off for hours. And it, it's truly a community type feel for those of us. It was a couple dozen of us at first. You know, the thing is unwieldy at this point. There's There were thousands of people on his last stream, but he revealed at Christmas that he was the DFV he was the same person. No one knew who DFV was until oh. his Christmas reveal. So none of us realized when we were talking to Roaring Kitty that he was the same person. So so I think that's really important to highlight. It's not like we knew I all didn't realize this that. guy. Yeah, that Joe, that's huge. None of us. And, and I've asked everyone, right? And you would think of all the players, I'd probably be the one to know. No, I had no clue. And it was just such an overwhelming thing. So just just to be clear... There is a uh, there is this guy Roaring Kitty on Twitter and YouTube who makes the videos. There's also this account DFV stands for Deep Value. We can't say the you know the middle one, but anyone knows what it is. People did not realize that the guy on Wall Street Bets with the profane name was also the guy on YouTube doing the fun videos. Correct. Got it. Okay, keep going. Sorry, I just wanted to. Uh, that's inter- I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, a big part of the story, I think. Um, so. You know, going back to like how impactful was he, you know, we need to understanding that little nugget right there. Think about what was it that, you know, gave anybody reason to follow him? You know, the guy made this big trade in, like I alluded to earlier, 2019, August, completely independent of me. I never knew him until this past summer. But like Dr. Burry, we saw what we believed to be a very mispriced security and we thought that the timing made sense in terms of the catalysts that we would see along the way. Like I, I said earlier, no way to know what would happen with COVID and Ryan Cohen, but w- he made a very highly convicted, highly, you could call it speculative, but it, it was reasoned bet on a lot of out of the money call options. He accumulated several thousand. January 21, it was like 7, 10, 12, 15, maybe 17 and $20 strikes. So he had put, I believe, a hundred odd thousand dollars of, you know, he he noted um, in his coming out video that it, 
his family, you know, they rent at their house. They don't come from wealth. You know, he, his wife, his daughter, they are not financially well-to-do. So truly it was the embodiment of a Wall Street Betsy Olo play for him. And he's been public about that now that he's kind of come out on it. And I think people, that gives people something to coalesce around. The guys for months, for years posted, and on Reddit as DFV, he would purely post a screenshot of his position. And like me, he was down huge at certain points. The stock got down to 257 intraday. It closed at 280. And it didn't cause us to be rattled in our thesis necessarily. I mean, sure, it hurt uh, looking at our, our, our positions in the valuation, but it, it's kind of like this guy has the, you know, the balls to see a trade through, to have conviction. And I think that won him a lot of admirers. And that's why I believe a lot of the Redditors are, are so enamored with him. And he's kind of like a deity to some of them, but, but they don't, many of them don't understand the full story. And I think that it's important to realize this was a guy who came in, he made a YOLO type play in terms of the percent of his portfolio who he allocated. Personally, for me, it was similar. It was a majority of my portfolio, not something I recommend anyone ever do, but I was that convicted in the play that I did similar to him. Um, haven't had the same outsized gains because my options were not so deep out of the money, but it was reasoned. It was conviction, just like the shorts conviction. They were fully convicted in bankruptcy. They clearly had to believe that the outcome was bankruptcy. When the stock traded below three, four dollars, when it traded below net cash, it didn't strike me that the risk reward made sense to be short at that point. But, you know, who knew, knows who was driving on that side? Um, but for Roaring Kitty, you know, just his consistency of delivering his position updates on Reddit um, his alter ego, Roaring Kitty, excuse me, on you know YouTube being just, an, he'll greet everybody who enters the chat, ask how they're doing, genuinely engage in conversation, just a nice human being. And I think everyone, that authenticity truly, you know, spoke to everybody who was involved. And that's why, you know, people are rooting for the guy. You've done a lot of analysis on the fundamental business model of GameStop. We're talking a lot about all this market craziness, but ultimately GameStop share price is up. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It was recently halted, but I think we were over $400 per share. So an astronomical jump. I mean, there've been three halts. I've been trying to follow it a little bit while we've been discussing this morning. You know, we started around 930 and there've been at least three halts from what I've seen. I uh, see the highs at 483. Can it go much higher? Could it double? Could it triple? It could. I don't know. But I just sold 420 shares at 42069 limit, full disclosure. Um, I've meme I've memeified myself for all of eternity, and I'm happy to be recorded saying as such, because look, it's fun. That's the thing I think people are missing. It is speculative. People are gambling right now. If you're buying GameStop at this price point, you are buying because you believe it will keep going up, just like you would assume any investor in any security is doing. Um, there's different theses underpinning their reasons for thinking the price will go up, but for now, they may have a belief that there will continue to be for some time more buyers than sellers. And as these you know, major hedge funds continue to liquidate, that there may be more forced buying. I don't know what everyone's personal strategy is. I don't know how high it could possibly go. It, you know, Hearing about these halts and all these kind of shady things where you have the the brokerage is not even allowing people to enter long sides of the trade. I mean, I, I think it's unleashing a fervor. Uh, Chamath really put it well on CNBC. It really feels like 
you know, if the retail, if the small guy or girl gets screwed over or loses out, you know, they're SOL. But if the big fund makes a mistake and doesn't ma manage their risk management prudently and now they get trapped on the wrong side of a trade, somehow they have the levers of power that they can escape. And I think people are, are trading emotionally. And I can appreciate that. Last night when I saw Wall Street bets go private and I saw people discussing it, I saw is Thomas Paine on Fox Business, a recording of the gentleman, you know, kind of pounding the table saying, you know, buy GameStop. Like people aren't doing a discounted cash flow analysis to buy GameStop at these levels. And no one is going to claim otherwise. But just like with Tesla, I think that there's that piece of, you know, investors, if they just want to see the company succeed, what? how do you value that in your equation? GameStop is a venerable brand. This is something I think people miss. Um, I saw some uh, market research a few months back. One of my consorts in, in our group is a marketing uh, leader. And, you know, like many, he's opted to remain anonymous. But he had shared some research that showed GameStop was behind Walmart, Amazon, dollar stores. And it was either fourth or fifth on the list of holiday gifting destinations. And this was across a broad swathe of the population. This was young folks all the way up to, you know, Boomer Plus. And if people have that brand presence, that brand awareness, 20 plus million active power up rewards members in the last year, you have a brand that exists. You have, yes, a legacy physical video gaming product that is in a long-term decline, but that many would argue is not going away um, even within the end of the decade, in my opinion, personally, that can pivot into the other areas of a nearly $200 billion video gaming TAM. Are there adjacencies beyond the video gaming that they could spread into? I don't know. So I haven't heard anything from Ryan since he was added to the board. We tried to lay out a bull case in our GMEDD, kind of incorporating what we'd seen from existing management and from Ryan. And I think that there is an argument that Ryan could push the price beyond where it is today, but there's not enough known information to, to you know, make an investment based solely on that. So right now, yes, Tracy, it's absolutely speculative. I don't think it's unreasonable to think GameStop could see prices like $400 in the future if Ryan is given you know, full reign. I, I would stand by that comment. But again, I, I'm not encouraging anyone to you know, invest for long-term value at $390.56. Let me, you know, I actually wanted to get into this. You mentioned the brand. You also mentioned that you're um, uh, a gamer personally. And, you know, my understanding, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, is that the gamer community has long held a sort of love-hate relationship with the games, with GameStop. Could you A, sort of describe that relationship, but also B, I imagine there's a massive overlap between the Redditors, Wall Street betters, and gamers. So how does that fit into the excitement for the trade that whether it's love or hate, there's probably an intimate familiarity with this company for many of the people trading the stock? Yeah, Joe, that's a good point. I, I mean, I, I think I said love, hate, as you were saying it, sorry, but I, I feel the same way. And I think a lot of folks, look, video gaming is not, um, I mean, obviously it's growing like crazy. And a lot of people, if you're younger, especially we talked about the democratic democratization of kind of investment with these, you know, lack of commissions, ease of accessing options, trading, and, you know, not encouraging trading derivative securities you don't fully understand. But I think that that is a good point that a lot of us grew up with GameStop. A lot of us grew up with video games. We saw this company, maybe we're looking now back in hindsight and saying, yeah, it was at four bucks. Now it's at 400, but like feeling like GameStop had 
you know, the man's boot on its neck. And this company was trying to be dragged down by these big money to parties and interests. So you've kind of got that contrarian, like rage against the machine type feel where people were like, you know what, screw it. I like this company too. Maybe I haven't been always happy with how much they wanted to give me for my old Madden trade-in, but I see that they're making progress. I like the things that I'm hearing about this new guy being involved. Uh, Look, they launched a new web app or iOS and Android app at the end of September. They've upgraded the web property. So I assume there are many new customers, right? I said that 20 million active PowerUp members in the last year, um, in the K, it was 15 and change. So clearly they've added a lot of new customers or new old customers within the last year, especially amid COVID. Again, uh, no one could have planned for that. But I think people remember the brand. People have different emotional connections. Video gaming is kind of, look, some people have these games that they play for years. I got an Xbox Series X and I've been playing Skyrim, which is a game from like 2011, uh, epic game from Bethesda, who Microsoft bought um, a couple months back. But if people have a very emotional connection with video games, I think they have the social connection with video games, where whether it's over the Xbox platform or PlayStation, you know, I know GameStop is trying to make themselves the social and cultural hub of video gaming. That's part of their reboot strategy. So you have all of these uh, you know, aspects of it that, that make it more than just a me sitting at home in isolation playing a video game. I think that that cultural, that social piece is, is part of that story that, that you're talking about with the love-hate. You talking about how old Skyrim is, um, that's made me feel very, very old all of a sudden. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about this nostalgia element in GameStop because some of the other meme stocks that we've seen go up recently, you know, we have AMC, which operates movie theaters. We have Tootsie Roll, Blackberry, and a few others. And I, I think a lot of people might associate that with, you know, growing up or things that have happened in their past. I guess, what's your advice for seeking the next meme stock that goes up? Is it to find something that a lot of people identify with where there might be hidden value? Is it to, I know you said you weren't big on the gamma squeeze um, theory or dynamics, but is it to identify structural weaknesses in the stock, like the amount of short interest that's out there? What are you going to be looking for, assuming that, you know, maybe you do this again? <laughs> Let me say one thing. I'm, I'll never again have a position to constitute <laughs> the majority of my personal portfolio. And I hope other people consider more prudent portfolio management than I. Um, I've been a beneficiary of it in this case, but... You know, I'm I'm contrarian by nature. I bought GameStop in 2017 as a deep value play. So I'm not going to be chasing the next hot big thing personally. And I don't begrudge anyone who follows different online message boards or Twitter personalities and decides that that's the way that they are going to play the game. They're going to see what some big name has to say that this is the stock they should buy and, and follow the crowd. And I'm not a crowd chaser. But there's something to be said if the crowd is big enough that that crowd can overwhelm even the largest of hedge funds. So if, to identify the next opportunity, you know, I'm I think I've made the point. I'm looking at the financials. I'm trying to look forward. I'm, I'm not going to worry about like, you know, the GameStop's income statement was trash for the last couple of years, given um, asset impairments and goodwill write downs. So you need to dig into things and understand what's truly happening, appreciate changes at the board and management level, because those are 
Uh, you know, look, for my day job, I, I do corporate strategy. I get to interact with C-suite and, and you know, kind of work on board decks and presentations. And, you know, if, if you have the right people in place all across the company, I think amazing things can happen. So it's not a simple answer, but you need to dig in and understand what's going on. And until you do, personally, I don't feel comfortable investing unless I you know, really understand what's going on. Maybe that's why I'm so heavily in cash now that I've sold out of GameStop. <laughs> just haven't had time to dig into other things. But I think that's that's my message is is you've got to do the due diligence. You've got to do the work. You can't you, you can, I guess, follow a gamma squeeze into into the moon. But um, I don't think that that's a long term successful strategy. How many hedge funds have reached out to about uh, joining them? Joining? <laughs> yeah. Or having you be a, a trader, portfolio manager. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I have you know, one of the members of our little um, group. So, so I, I don't know, Joe, if you saw it or, or Tracy, I, I had written Ryan, um, I writ, wrote to his lawyer, wor- worked with a shareholder activism lawyer and, and you know, I penned the letter and he cleaned it up a little bit uh, on behalf of 4% of shares outstanding. Again, I, I don't, I'm not the beneficial owner of that. I don't have any control over what they do. I'm sure many of them have sold on this wild run. But after he put the the letter out to the board in November, we had this belief that Ryan offers absolutely the most upside value for GameStop. And we wanted Ryan to be more involved. And Ryan had made it clear, I think, from his 13D filings that he wanted to be more involved. So we, we wrote him a, you know, a love letter. We said, we love what you, you said in, in your letter to the board. We agree. We've seen what's happened over the years you know, with the, the 2018 strategic review and the refreshing of the board and, and with COVID. You know, we agree that another strategic review makes sense given how fundamentally the business has changed over 2020. So you know, we lent our support. We noted if there is a proxy event, he, you know, he'd have our, our, our sword, so to speak. And obviously they, they reached the settlement. So I have no idea if if what we advised him had any part in the negotiation. And I'd like to think it had a small part to play. But that is, I think, the best that a small retail investor could ever do is to say to, you know, the other, the largest individual investor, you know, look, we we see what you're doing and saying, we agree with what you're doing and saying. And, you know, if there is a fight, look, there was a, there was a proxy fight last spring. And I think a lot of us who've been in it for a long time, were able to take our learnings and our experience being involved with the Hestia permit proxy fight in spring 2020 to know how to position ourselves and prospectively profit off of uh, another upcoming proxy. So it, it's not like we uh, were just mad men following this guy into battle. We, we, we did our research. We wrote him, we said, you know, you, we're interested in the direction you're taking the company. And that's why when he joined the board with Alan Atoll and Jim Group from Chewy, we put out this research saying why we saw a bull case that would be you know, far higher than the, what the price was at the time. If you're not getting offers from hedge funds, you can uh, you can join our SPAC, the Odd Lot SPAC. We're going to buy call options <laughs> on meme stocks with uh, big shorts on them, big short interest. That's our plan. <laughs> Rod, any last quick thoughts, things that we missed, points you want to get across? Yeah, I would just say for me personally, and I think I speak for many of the folks who've been on this crazy ride, and it's been a it's been an emotional roller coaster. It's been a life changing experience. Um, wow, it's been really you know powerful just hearing how many people's lives have been changed for the better. So I'm just very thankful. Rod, that was so great. We're so so happy that you came on. I love this story. I think it's when people listen to it, they'll realize it's much more interesting than they probably realized. Very cool. 
Thank you so much for coming on Odd Lot. Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much, Joe and Tracy. I really appreciate it. Tracy, that is just that was the best story. You you know you said this is one of the um this might be the craziest week you've ever seen in markets. That is hands down one of the best market stories ever. Period. There's a lot going on. Um, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, I think Rod like laid out a very interesting story about how he first got involved in the stock. I thought this idea that you know he had been to lots of malls when he was growing up and was a gamer and probably had good memories of GameStop or at least prominent memories of GameStop. That's very interesting to me. Um, I do think. I do think there's going to be, and clearly it worked out for him, right? Like, I know he didn't say exactly how much money he yeah. made, but he is very happy, obviously very emotional towards the end. There is this element of the democratization of finance. However, I do think we should talk more about the sheer sort of gamma short squeeze dynamics. I think we should yeah. talk maybe to someone who got in the stock just based on pure flows and just to jump on the bandwagon. We should definitely delve more into what exactly the end game is here because there might be some people who don't have as great an outcome. So I'm happy for Rod. I'm still slightly worried about some people who are in the trade and you know if they get caught offside. Totally. And um, I completely agree on all that 100%. I don't even have anything to add. I just really love it. It's a great story. Yeah. And no, I do. You know, I do think the one thing is, is like, I love that this story actually really did originate with a value trade because there's so much talk, the death of value, the death of value. And this is like sort of like maybe become the iconic trade of this bull market. And it's just such an old school, like value thing. It's like, the I said, you know, you read Rod's report. People should go to gmedd.com to look at the original research. You watch the Roaring Kitties videos and so on. It is like, a, you know, like a like an old Bill Ackman <laughs> breakup value case where it's like really understanding the business, the likes of which does not fit the popular narrative of everything just being about like sort of growth and, you know, what's hip. It was like they understood the business. They made a call on it. They un They had a view that the underlying business was worth more than the stock and they were they got they won and i'm going to debate you on this cuz i know rod and roaring kitty did have a value thesis on this but like to me this is a value play or some people had a value play and then it turned into something else i think even the yes. bulls like can't argue that this level totally. is justified and yeah. we'll talk more yes we're agreed 100% but i like that it started with that yeah but you know what's interesting real quickly on that point it's not like, you know, you think of a lot of like value trades as like, oh, I see 25 percent upside right. from here. If you break it up, they did see the huge multiple increase. That's so true. it wasn't just like, a, you know, they did see that this could thing could rocket. It was not like, oh, this will be a marginal winner. Their bet that was <clears throat> going back, watch the Roaring Kitties video from August, that it would go to the moon. And so like, that's true. They kind of called it anyway.
No, I, I agree. Um, and it was great having Rod on the show to kind of remind everyone of the origins of GameStop. Yes. But I also think he's right that, you know, we're going to be talking about this forever. And, uh, yes, you know, there's, totally. there's there's a chance that he's going to pop up in a lot of market history books uh, going forward, totally. along with people totally. like Roaring Kitty and uh, Deep Fudging Value. Yeah. All right. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest Rod Alsman on Twitter. He's at Rod Alsman, which is A-L-Z-M-A-N-N. Check out his website, gmedd.com. Also follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today, and check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.